Hey everybody, welcome to Bringing Meditation to Life, a podcast in which we immerse ourselves in the intersection of meditation and everyday life, in which we look at the ways meditation illuminates and deepens our experience of daily living and the ways life itself does the same for our practice. I'm your host, Neil McKinley. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the other voices aspect of this bringing meditation to life podcast. This is an opportunity for us to learn a little bit about what practice and life looks like for other meditators that I know. And today, it's our good fortune to have Deborah Deborah Eden Tull with us. It's our good fortune to be able to sit back and listen as Eden shares a little bit of her experience with us. So welcome, Eden, and thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Grateful to be here with you, Neil, and everyone listening. Thanks for having me. Well, very much our pleasure. And uh, maybe we can just start with uh, getting to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what your life looks like? Sure. Well, I'm a practitioner and teacher of engaged meditation and Dharma. I live here in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And I live and my practice is very woven into um, a very close connection with the earth, I would say, as a place to start, so that I recognize part of meditation as an opportunity to remember and recognize who and what we really are. And for me and throughout my whole life, even when I lived in a city, um, it was clear that the natural world was one of my most helpful reminders and one of my most helpful guides, uh, sort of calling me back home again and again and again into original consciousness, true nature, just kind of freedom from the fixation with the human realm. And so I've always trusted nature as my greatest teacher. I would start there. Hmm. And, you know, in offering that uh, starting point, you mentioned remember at one point, and you uh, you also talked about reminders. And I don't know about you, but one of the things that I find coming up a lot in my own practice and in working with others is the importance of remembering and the importance of having reminders that help us remember. And can you speak to those two words, what they mean for you, how they show up in your life and your practice? Yes, absolutely. Um, I guide a, a weekly sangha called the Fierce Compassion Sangha, and we meet once a week to meditate together. And that gathering is called Remembering the Already Awakened State. And I think there's a lot of significance to bringing that framework of remembering to our practice because it's not that there's something we have to reach out into and develop that we don't have access to in our already existing true nature. It's that we need to turn towards what's here, cultivate it, and yes, help to remind 
one another of who and what we really are. So for instance, in our Sangha, which I came from that gathering, not long before connecting here with you, uh, there's a feeling of just a really down to earth, uh, all inclusive circle of people gathering in honesty, in transparency, learning from one another's practice, learning from one another's, we might say, victories and awakening moments and deepest challenges. And I'm the guiding teacher. And yet I guide in a way that reminds us that we don't wake up in isolation. We wake up with one another. We wake up together. We wake up in community. So that speaks a bit to the remembering piece. And you also brought in the aspect of reminding. And I think it's really beautiful um, in my own practice to think about a balance of conscious protection on one side and conscious allowing. This sort of speaks to the balance of yang and yin. And by conscious protection, I might be pointing to some of the ways that we're required to, to show up and bring a discipline to our practice, to have ways of reminding ourselves throughout the day to simply let go and rest in shared presence. We might have reminders woven into our life through our schedule, commitments that we have, that we know help us to remember who and what we really are. So there's this aspect of as soon as we cultivate awareness, as soon as we are, sometimes it's ignited in us as a flame through a book we've read or a life experience or a heartbreak or a teacher we met, but there is an, an element of needing to consciously protect that flame as it builds. And on the other side is conscious allowing, which is, the practice of letting go, releasing mental effort, which is an over relied upon way to approach life within the dominant paradigm, softening, less softening effort, relaxing, learning to trust more the domain of being rather than doing. And yet it's not one or the other. It's this beautiful balance between being and doing, between, between this conscious protection or yang element, even the conscious protection of being able to say no to a conditioned thought, to a limiting belief that we're getting tired of. But on the other hand, the vital importance of conscious allowing and learning how to just be with what arises. So I hope that's helpful to folks listening. That's very helpful. I, I mean, one of the, the phrases or the terminologies that's been coming up in my own practice and work is talking about um, meditation as both an effortful and effortless undertaking, which sounds like it very much echoes what you're describing here. Yes, absolutely. And there's a great quote by a non-dual teacher, Rupert. Spira. I'm not sure if you have heard any of his teachings, but he, he says meditation is not something we do. Meditation is who we are. And I always like to remind people of this message because sometimes when people first come to practice, and this can be exacerbated by sort of the, the modern 
meditation and mindfulness world, it feels like, oh, I should meditate because a good person meditates, or I should meditate because I'm a mess and this will fix or heal me. It's the right person thing to do to meditate, so I'm going to. And that can begin as our motivation. But anything woven into the motivation of self-improvement, sort of fixing the self, in my experience, um, gets dissolved the deeper we go. And we really begin to recognize that, oh, shared presence is is what I am. It's who I am. Meditation is who I am. It's where I feel home. And it's something I can be engaging in all of the time because it's not a separate activity. There's certainly an activity called formal sitting meditation, and that's part of our practice. But the informal is equally invaluable. And that weaves into how we relate with our community, with our environment, with ourself, every aspect of our life. And can you, can we maybe spend some time with that notion of informal meditation? I mean, I think it's, for me, it's one of the pieces of the practice or the contemplative um, puzzle, if you will, that I feel is so helpful and often so unacknowledged in terms of, you know, what specifically might informal practice look like? What what specifically are you pointing to when you're describing that for us here? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm pointing to the recognition that, yes, there's value to sitting meditation as the foundation. It can be one of the, the simplest, least complex fields, though it can get pretty complex sometimes, for dropping into spacious awareness because not much else is going on. But then there's all the rest of our life, our waking and sleeping life, our relationships, our work life, our relationship to the state of our world, our love life, whatever it is. The invitation is to bring the mind of meditation, to bring presence, and I'm going to say um, awareness of the spacious field of interconnection as opposed to emphasis on the separate self, which Mm -hmm. begins to dissolve the more we practice, to bring that to all domains of our life. And in my, um, when I first transitioned from the Buddhist monastery where I trained, I moved of all places from like silent monastery in the wilderness to the bustling city of Los Angeles. Uh, Now we say this is not a move I recommend to anyone, but it was um, a great practice opportunity. And I really quickly saw both through my practice and those I was guiding just a need for a greater bridge between what happens on the cushion and how we engage in what people call the real world. And I tend to refer to as the illusory world. But anyway, um, (laughs) so I I wrote a book called Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other and the planet. And I write about nine principles in that book, which just came directly from, from my experience of what helps us to as you're saying, really bring our practice to life. And so, for instance, the first is so darn simple. It's just being clear about our intention each day, our intention going into each conversation, 
it's really e easy for ego's intentions to remain hidden to us, even in conversation, like right here and now, my ego might have a hidden intention of, I hope I'm getting this person's approval, or I hope I sound smart, or we want people to like us, whatever it is. <laughs> and we can drop that and say, well, my heart's intention is shared presence. That's my heart and its intention wherever I go. So letting that be the focus. And I'm not going to go through them all, but just to name a couple others. Another is simply the, the sacred pause, really recognizing the invitation to weave the pause into our life throughout the day. The mm -hmm. pause that lets us kind of notice if we've been swept up on the river of thought and story and come up onto the shore and re find our connection with the earth and uh, the moment. And there's many more. Practicing transparency, I find really important. It helps me stay connected in a world where there can be lots of um, unnamed pieces of social expectation and etiquette that require people to leave presence or put on a mask, to just show up as yourself, as you are, wherever you are. And to recognize that that's transformational in today's world. Is that making sense? Very much so. And, yeah. and I'm wondering, you know, uh, just thinking about my everyday life, our everyday life, uh, you know, thinking about the first one specifically clear in one's intention. So would that be something that, you know, upon waking that you would revisit and reconnect with for yourself? Yes. And so I encourage people upon waking to be aware of each day, what is the first thought that arises mm -hmm. as I wake up to set your intention at the very start of your day. And often we connect with that, even not so verbally by just making our first motion, getting up and going to the meditation cushion, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is mm -hmm. certainly how I like to begin each day. And there are other parts to, for instance, morning practice for me that I find um, non-negotiable. Uh, it's really important for me to spend time, especially given the conditioning of the dominant paradigm that can pull us away from our bodies, to have a practice really grounding me in my body through movement in addition to stillness and it's equally important for me to have some time to connect with the more than human world mm -hmm. before i even consider turning on a phone or computer and opening that whole <laughs> world so those are some other examples of how we ground in our intention at the start of the and day and then would that be something that you'd review at the end of the day yes yes and not from a pass-fail or heady place, but just checking in, inquiring into, in the spirit of appreciation, uh, how I met that intention, sometimes in a really humbling way, recognizing, wow, like, for instance, I have a book coming out really soon, and I'm noticing there are more emails in my inbox than ever. And it's uncomfortable. And it's stirring. <laughs> and the busy mind is getting more stirred. So my practice of conscious protection has to be even more intact right now. Mm -hmm. right? That effortful part of your practice, the discipline, formal yes. discipline. 
<laughs> now, you mentioned you've mentioned presence a number of times. So we're talking about, you know, we've got a bunch of themes on the table, really, but presence and everyday living, presence and informal practice. I mean, does that for you have the capacity to um begin to blur any of the 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 lines of separation that I think are so easily put between meditation and the rest of my life. You know, I'm thinking of just how many moments of presence spontaneously arise in my life in the course of the day that don't really seem to have anything to do with formal meditation practice. I can have presence watching an episode of the Gilmore Girls, for instance. Yes, absolutely. Is is an appreciation of that, those moments, part of, you know, what, what we're talking about here with the informal practice of presence in our everyday life? Yes, absolutely. And um, often I appreciate the phrase shared presence because Mm. it just reminds me and speaks directly to my continued experience that when I rest in presence, it's shared presence. It's the larger, already, always existing field of interconnection, which is the backdrop of all of life. And I know And we could do the whole podcast talking about the suffering I've experienced as a human that I witness others experience through being drawn into the mind of separation, through Mm. living through the trance of separation. And so in a sense, when I'm talking about a daily intention and an intention to continually connect with, it is about being willing to dissolve the trance of separation and to rest in shared presence. And one more piece about that I might say is just, it's so interesting that I think modern humans are very conditioned to compartmentalize and also to perceive sort of through a lens of product versus process. So Mm -hmm. when we're seeing through that lens, it's like, okay, well, now I'm at work doing my work. Uh, Now I'm having a meal. Now I'm uh, going out with friends. It all feels very compartmentalized. And practice invites us to focus on the process, the how we bring to life, how we do what we do. There's a great teaching in Zen. It's not what we do. It's how we do it. And so when we begin to understand that, like, oh, I'm relearning a way of being and a way of meeting life through my sitting practice, that then I can begin to bring to all aspects of life, that compartmentalization just starts to dissolve. And it's a sense of, okay, so yeah, right now I'm at my office. I'm in a podcast interview with you. This is part of the domain of work. But it's in the context of simply being committed to bringing a compassionate process to life right here and now. And then to the meal I'm going to eat after this, and then to the clients I'm going to work with after that. It's all about process. Does that Mm. resonate with your own experience? Very much so. Very much so. And I'm really curious, you know, we've been talking about shared presence. And I love the way that that phrase immediately perforates the notion of presence that I brought to this discussion, you know, 
presence in retrospect, it felt like it was something I have or something I connect with in this moment, shared Mm -hmm. presence, that phrase just begins to open it up. So I love that phrase. And I've just noticed how we're talking about shared presence and into this discussion, you've brought this notion of compassion. And I'm wondering if you can link those explicitly for us. That's a very, um, in my experience, a very attractive word, compassion. So what is now being spoken of and how does this link to shared presence and our formal and informal engagement, immersion, welcoming, witnessing, experiencing of this? Sure. Yeah. I'll return for a moment to a point earlier in our conversation where we were emphasizing practice not as something we do, but a remembering of who and what we already are. And I think of compassion very similarly. (laughs) People can think, okay, I've got to learn about compassion and what would the Buddha do in this situation? And I've got to try to become more like that. The more we return to shared presence, this is a field I described as an already always existing field of interconnection. It's a field of spaciousness, again, that already exists. It's a field different spiritual traditions point to in many different ways. I've heard Christians point to as the hidden foundation of goodness. I've heard so many different descriptions. (laughs) But when we rest in this place, there's a compassion that is innate that we're able to tap into, I think of compassion as having both an inner and outer motion, meaning we both, when resting in compassion, receive it ourselves, and we're able to offer it to others. Now, from the mode of separate self, from the illusion of self versus other, there's some confusion. And I sometimes hear people talk about, oh, I need to try to be compassionate towards someone else Instead of learning how to rest in the field of compassion where you have natural access to it, if you have a human heart, I promise you have natural access to it. You have a relational intelligence that is far greater than you've been taught. One of the passions of mine is to help people to to illuminate for people more of the aspects of relational intelligence that can become reawakened for us through meditation, because I think it's so needed in our world. So compassion, for instance, can have both a gentle expression, soft compassion, just being able to be with and listen to someone without trying to fix or solve them, just being with a difficult emotion arising. And it can also have a fierce energy to it. Again, when we notice Uh, an incessant thought that takes us down a path of suffering, we can intervene and say, no, I've seen where this goes. And for compassion towards this being, I'm not going there this time. Mm -hmm. So so really reestablishing our access to what already exists inside. And one more piece I'll share from what I just said is that I think it's interesting that many people have sort of a an aspect of the self or aspect of the personality who's like the helper or fixer trying to be helpful and maybe i'll offer that person i'm listening to and need advice or i'll try to make them feel better or i'll try to 
And I encourage people to pay attention to the difference between trying to be helpful and actually being of service. <laughs> mm-hmm. If we're willing to just rest in shared presence with whoever we are with, we can be of service. <laughs> sometimes that means nothing but being the witness, the silent witness. And sometimes that means um, offering a question, which is such a generous way of helping someone to see more clearly or a more active expression of compassion. But it has to come from this place of shared presence, not the separate self. <laughs> I'm going to fix you. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been really noticing that um, the last couple of years, just the the transformational quality that others have for us and that we have for others when we are simply willing to show up as we are in this moment. That if we show up as something other, something trying to help or assume a role or whatever it might be, not so much. Right. But when we simply show up, so an example would be, you know, if I'm with a group of practitioners, you know, we're having one of our weekly meetings, we have a few minutes at the end where we're talking, someone um, very hesitantly says, you know, I'm not really sure about saying this, but I'm really having a hard time right now. And just that beautiful authenticity that's coming from nowhere other than I'm having a hard time right now, it it changes the group and it changes the individuals in the group. I see it and I feel it over and over and over again. Yes, yes. And I believe you just touched on the value of transparency when someone's willing to show up to the relational field in transparency and name. I'm having a hard time rather than believing the context that might say it's important to appear strong rather than weak. Or if we name our vulnerabilities, we're giving something away. It's exactly the opposite uh, if we have a practice and if awakening is important to us. <laughs> now, that raises an interesting question. I mean, do you feel in your experience, does meditation sometimes bring with it for us as individuals and for us as more as more collectively, a context that encourages, that discourages this kind of transparency that we're talking about? Meaning, I need to be, a, this is a meditation group. I need to be very peaceful. I need to be very Zen. I need to be very loving. Is that something you've seen? I have seen it. I think it can be the case before we go deep. Mm. I think it can be the case when we're approaching meditation as, again, like a self-improvement notion, or when we're believing that enlightenment has both an end and is a goal. There's a sense of, well, I think so many people just haven't had uh, ample life experiences of entering a relational field where everything is welcome, where welcome and acceptance is the ground of that field. I think a healthy practice community, a healthy sangha lays that ground and then helps people learn how to take pieces of that quality of earth out into their own communities and their own areas of work and their own relationships. But um, I do think oftentimes at the beginning, people can come and think, like I just, when I'm sharing guidelines for a retreat I'm teaching or a relational mindfulness workshop, or I just say, hey, one of the guidelines is I'm inviting you to just show up as you are knowing that sometimes we show up to a social field, even a yoga class or 
uh, party, thinking we need to be on, thinking we need to look good. In this case, thinking we need to sound wise. Mm-hmm. Let's all drop that. And the mm. room relaxes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. maybe do you have some some pointers for us? You know, a lot of people um, are, you know, looking for a guide, a teacher, a community, a network, you know, however we might phrase it, are looking for a context where they might develop a deeper relationship with meditation, a deeper relationship with their lives. Um, Do you have any kind of pointers for what would you look for in a healthy community, one that fosters this kind of relaxation, this kind of inclusiveness that you're pointing towards? Yeah. You know, what yeah. might we look for when we walk in the door for the first, second, or third time? Yeah, thank you. I think that um, most importantly, even if what we read on that community's website really resonates with us and the framework is aligned with our interest in practice, we have to look within and listen to our hearts and really see how a field feels. We learn more and more as we deepen a meditation practice to trust our inner compass and conscious discernment, a deeper relational knowing we have inside that just by sensing and feeling can can tell us, gosh, there's something really genuine happening here. There's something really healing and honest and down to earth and transformative happening here. And it's important to look to that place as well as being aware of, you know, part of safety in a group field has to do with the way that field is held by the teacher, by the facilitator, by the community. But part of it has to do with how each person approaching that field shows up. So that means being aware of projection. We're human beings, we project, but let's notice and be honest about where we might projecting be projecting such a pedestal. Uh, Pedestals are really important to pay attention to, that we're putting the teacher or the community or the teachings above ourselves. I can Mm. tell you that I did that for years early on in my practice, and it (laughs) got me into some real trouble and um, some real suffering. And so we have to be willing to really honor ourselves and be aware of projection and be aware of anytime we're entering relationship with a community or teacher, kind of what the contract and expectation is, even if it's not written, getting clear on that, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. that there's a, a safe field for conscious engagement. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. That's very helpful and very well put. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, we are coming toward the uh, the end of our time together here. And this is the time where I normally ask whoever I'm speaking with, if they have any tips for our listeners, you know, how you bring, how they might bring meditation and daily living more closely together. How might we do this in your experience? And I feel like given the the tenor of, you know, our conversation and what we've just talked about, what you've just talked about here, you know, maybe I'll rephrase that, you know, how can we bring that kind of inner trusting that you're pointing to? How can we bring that inner trusting and our daily lives more closely together? Do you have any tips or pointers in that regard for us here? 
That's a great uh, question. And what's arising might not be what I would expect to arise, but it's, it's something I want to emphasize. <laughs> and it's that I've always loved the phrase as opposed to waking up, uh, waking down into and through our bodies, waking down into and through our bodies. And I think this is in invaluable for weaving meditation into our whole life because it can be easy, especially at the beginning, to get kind of heady about practice. It can be easy to not notice that we're bringing unconscious belief systems that are actually the cause of our suffering to our practice itself, or even that spiritual communities at times are holding unconscious biases they're not aware of. And in the newest book I've written, I write about the need for endarkenment alongside enlightenment. And I'm not going to say too much about that right now, but just emphasize that there is, I believe, a, a collective impetus to think of enlightenment as an end, as a goal, and something we get to through philosophizing and understanding and pushing away our shadows so we can purify ourselves. And none of that is my experience. It's my experience that we wake down into and through the already existing wisdom of our earth bodies. So for those people listening, I really encourage you to um, compassionately pay attention to places that you might be coming more from your head than body and heart. I encourage you to make your practice as kind and loving to your animal body as humanly possible, because I think we have a lot of work to do in that domain as a species right now. And I really find that it uh, helps us to reawaken to who and what we are. And then lastly, to allow, as I emphasized at the beginning, our connection with the earth. And even if you live in a city, as I did for years, that is completely possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Allow your connection with the earth to support you in your practice. Yeah, time to connect with the earth, please, first, before going on to your devices. If you're a practitioner, by the way, you are required to uh, cultivate a conscious relationship with devices. <laughs> As hard as that might sound. Hard. It may sound hard, but it's such a delicious invitation. Mm -hmm. It's such a delicious invitation because they are, speaking personally, such a, a, a prevalent part of my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so to actually include them in all of this is such a, a wonderful comment here. Thank you for that. So Eden, before saying thank you, for your being here um, and sharing with us today. You know, I want to acknowledge, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but you have just published a book. And I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about that before we conclude our time here. Sure. It's called Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown. And this is a book that came to me, sort of a calling and instruction. At first, it was like, oh, no. I can see I'm being asked by life to write a book about darkness, and that's going to be an intense project. And uh, my heart said yes, and I wrote 
much of it and completed it in the first year of the pandemic, which was really meaningful and significant. There's a sense of both on our spiritual path. We are always letting go of the familiar shore without yet seeing the next shore where we will land. And it's that dark, fertile field in between, <laughs> that mm -hmm. great unknown that we're asked to meet from shared presence. And collectively, we are facing the dark. We are facing greater unknown and uncertainty than any of our global ancestors faced. And so this is a time that I believe the teacher of darkness has a tremendous amount to offer us. And darkness has been uh, one of my great teachers. And so I'm very excited to share these teachings with people at this time. And I wrote the book in a way that it's very experiential. There's inquiry questions for people to sit with and practices so we can stay in our bodies as we're exploring uh, such a multidimensional topic. Thank you for asking. Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we came on here recording. Yeah, I've spent some time jumping around in the book and the experiential quality makes it very um, immersive, as does the fact that it's 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 got a multitude of sections. And so it's very easy to just for it was very easy for me to just settle in and uh, find myself in the flow of the book. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, luminous. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> so Luminous Darkness, and thank you very much for being here today, Eden. It's really been a pleasure. Truly appreciate it. For me as well. So thank and you, Neil. <laughs> you're very welcome. And thank you, as always, to everyone who is listening. If you want to learn a little bit about more, a little bit more about my work, helping us bring meditation to life, please visit my website at neilmckinley.com. And if you are so inclined, consider signing up for the newsletter, which is a monthly source of teachings and updates and special offers and a reminder when it shows up in your mailbox that meditation just might have something to offer your life. So in the meantime, take care and be well. And let's keep doing this work together. Let's keep bringing meditation to life.